Hello, welcome back to Anime in the Sea to Sky, and at least for today I have a little bit of a special episode considering that we're going to be taking another trip down memory lane, in a similar vein to what I did last year to see what was happening in the world of anime ten years ago. So at least here, we have a couple of opportunities, I don't necessarily have a lot of news, and the only non-anime things that I can kind of point out towards this fact is considering that back in the fall season of 2013, we ended up having a couple of things going simultaneously through the this anime season, leading into one in particular, Game of Thrones having its infamous third season, basically skyrocketing it to it being one of the most talked about series that was currently airing at the time, and another modern classic that was going through and putting the final touches on its final season was going through with Breaking Bad, but then now leading solely focusing on animation, they were talk wanting to talk about a couple of North American premieres, a couple of things did happen inside of anime, at least within those couple of months. One in particular is that, at least in Japan, we ended up getting the debut of Padma Inverted and The Tale of Princess Kaguya. Considering that one of those films is definitely one that has stood the test of time, while the other has just been kind of a mess that has never invited me to go back and rewatch in the first place, considering on how... The idea, especially with what the world of Padma was able to do, especially with the system where part of humanity is inverted to the point where up and down for them as their gravity has been reversed. And so what is essentially something as beautiful as, say, a night sky could be a terrifying endless abyss leading into somebody else. And how those two kinds of people interact, everything around that idea is solid. The production and the execution was fine, it's just the way that they were able to construct the story outside of that completely threw me for a loop. And at the end of the day, when they answered all the questions that needed to be answered, it still rubbed me the wrong way to the point where it's just, how did we even get here, and was it even worth it in the end? But I think I'm just going through and going on a negative tangent. Besides that, we ended up getting, at least for us out in the West, the North American premiere of the Madoka Magica Rebellion film. And in the 2000s and then leading into the early 2010s, anime in Western cinema hadn't necessarily been given too much of a fair shake, considering that the only reason why Princess Kaguya ended up making it worldwide with haste was because, of course, it, it bared the Ghibli name. And leading forward with that, it would take a couple of years before they would legitimately go through, anime would become more mainstream, more recognizable, and a more guaranteed hit for distributors to actually go through and take up the time inside of cinemas to, you know, display any of those new films within a decent time frame. And honestly, it had been a long, not necessarily a long while, considering that I had only been getting into the anime fandom not only two years prior, but the fact about how many people were legitimately going through and talking about this movie as it came out, where it was one of the first movies that I had seen that was so split inside of the fandom where one thought it was a phenomenal reversal of any kind of the tropes and storytelling inside of what they were able to accomplish, and others thought it was a complete bastardization of everything that Madoka Magica stood for, and it was a completely pointless class grab that did nothing but stir up conversation and legitimately try to throw everything else that it was building under the bus. But, at the very least, it got people talking, and now next year, uh, either next year or the year after in 2025, we're potentially going to be getting a sequel to that story that we thought Rebellion was able to go through, since Rebellion was a little bit open-ended on that vein. 
but it is definitely something that Gen Urobuchi and Akiyuki Shinbo weren't able to fully complete, even though that was something that was on their mind. Since, I mean, both of them were in the middle of having some of the most success that they'd had inside of their careers, and there would have been no real time for them to be able to have to find the opportunity to get back, work together, and finish this kind of unraveled mess that they had already tried to stitch together once, and in my opinion, kind of failed miserably. But at the very least, it seems that we're going to be getting an answer to some of those questions at least 12 to 18 months from now. But besides that... As long for the shows that we ended up getting back in the fall of 2013, we ended up getting a couple of oddballs and a couple of sequels to successes and ones that were still able to be thrown into the mix regardless of what genre they were trying to follow, which in this case, we ended up getting a really slipshod Bones adaptation in Samurai Flamenco since... In the beginning, it was a parody leading into a satire, but then also an actual action flick that led into some psychological traumas, but it still, at the end of the day, was very entertaining and something that still plays in the minds of those like 10 years out of the way. Probably my favorite shows that came out that season would have been Kyoso Giga and the first season of Log Horizon, considering that Kyoso Giga was just this passion project leading into one of the craziest stories that I had seen, like based on these handful of novels, which was completely original in its own right, but then you ended up also having Log Horizon, which was kind of everybody's, you know, go-to after Sword Art Online had made its complete splash the year before, considering that most of the opinions surrounding SAO, considering that it was the most popular show of that year, was either going to be, eh, it's kind of flawed, but I do really, I still really do like it. And then the other one was, which unfortunately for me, I was still in that party, which was just, no, I kind of enjoyed it, but then as you even think about it for longer than a second, every part of the story and the characters in the world definitely becomes something that is unraveling before your very eyes, since... At the end of the day, even though SAO is still extremely successful and it's continuously spawning sequels ten years at, more than 10 years after its initial release, it's still something that has never been seen as one that you could recommend to somebody or this is definitely something that amplifies animation as a whole. It's just there and you have to explain why it was popular when it came out as being a child of circumstance and what it was able to do with carrying that kind of success and that kind of momentum leading into the future. But at the very least, Log Horizon, what it didn't make up for in the animation and the production that SAO had, it basically made up for having much better and much more well-rounded characters, as well as a video game world that was thought out a lot more succinctly. And on top of that, having just a cast that was much more varied and entertaining and still something that was able to go through and actually get you thinking about these specific worlds and what being a video game, not necessarily death game like SAO was, but what could you actually do with a story based on an MMORPG to that degree? How would you be able to stretch out its rules in a way that would be able to make it seem inescapable but still have something that's fair and balanced? depending on who you would ask for sure. But it was definitely kind of seeing as those characters evolved, seeing like, hey, either if you liked SAO or you wanted something better than SAO, then Log Horizon was essentially the one that you would go be able to recommend and actually point somebody in the matter of it's like, oh, well, you like playing video games and you liked MMOs in the vein of World of Warcraft, then yeah, just throw them in that direction. You also ended up getting one of the classic 
uh, Slice of Life, cute girl shows like Not on Biori. You ended up getting a Toradora-esque romance in the form of Golden Time, which was kind of thrown into a fucking loop due to one specific ghost. Kyokai no Kanada was the most recent work coming out of Kyoto Animation, where it still knocked everybody's socks off with how well they were able to go through and animate the majority of the fights and the entire engagements as well as the conflict, but for better or worse, it was kind of left a little bit open-ended, which was able to go through and be resolved following a couple of movies a few years down the line. And sequel-wise, we ended up getting the second half of Moggy, The Kingdom of Magic, which to me was the first real shonen world that I ended up getting involved into when I was getting into anime. And I think towards the end of it, barring the sequels and the spin-offs, considering that Magi was able to go through and get about 50 episodes, I believe, done and out of the way. And I did go through and watch every single one, but it was definitely something that as it continuously progressed, it was kind of getting less and less interesting and entertaining towards that piece until they were able to go through and do some sequel content with the actual best character of the show, Sinbad. But that's beside the point. We also ended up getting the second season to probably the most popular sports anime at the time, which would have been Kuroko no Basket. Not a lot of people had heard of Slam Dunk, so the majority of all the basketball conversation in anime kind of flooded towards this show in particular, because I will admit that what Production IG was able to incorporate to almost all of their sports shows and then Haikyuu a little bit down the line, they were able to go through and mix up that formula a bit to make it kind of like Super Saiyan basketball games and to try to give it a little more of a dynamic edge so you would still find people being entertained as they were spouting different pieces of exposition at you to try and keep that game seem a little more interesting than it actually was. But at least for me in particular, the better sports show of that season would have gone to Hajime no Ippo Rising. Now, it had gone through a couple of different studios. We ended up getting about 75 episodes of the initial show that ran in the 90s uh, into the early 2000s, where they would then end up getting an OVA. They would follow that up with probably the best season of that show in New Challenger, considering that what they were able to accomplish with Takamura's title fight towards the rest of that was still probably, just still is to this day, one of the best anime fights of all time. And yes, I do know that it runs for a couple of episodes, but I mean, hey, you could still consider a fight, a volleyball match, a basketball game, one that determines the fate of the universe. All of them still fall under the same vein, considering that you were still fight following a multi-episode conflict between these two groups. And what they were able to accomplish with New Challenger, for better or worse, still hasn't been topped, considering that I really did appreciate the fights that we were able to get in Rising, but considering that it's been years since I've been able to go back and rewatch that, I think the only major parts that I remember from Rising was when we were able to go through and take a flashback down to Kamokawa's past, especially within an occupied Japan, and how he was able to go through and learn not necessarily the fine points of boxing, especially with what his training regiment was, but seeing where his inspiration came from and how they were able to go through and bring that towards the future. It was still probably the thing that is the most memorable to this day about that uh, specific season, which I believe was 25 episodes. And leading in towards the rest of that, it's been a while since I've gotten back into the Ippo manga, considering that the majority of those fights still continuously go through and have the opportunity to shock you even to that point. 
But considering that it's been more than 10 years now, I highly doubt to see any other future seasons that are going to be coming out of this show, which is a definite tragedy. Now, at least for the show today that I wanted to talk about, this one was definitely an interesting piece to go through. It wasn't a hard choice, for sure, considering that if we are going to be talking about the most popular and most hyped show of fall of 2013, then this was definitely a no-brainer. But at the very least, I'll get you through a uh, quick rundown or a quick history lesson on the background of this show in particular, considering that this was directed by Hiroyuki Imaishi and his team over at the during the time, newly formed Studio Trigger, since they had only just recently made it up with old members of Gainax, and they were looking to essentially become their successor, considering that the majority of the relationship that they had with the Uppers didn't really have the best case, considering that they weren't necessarily treating a lot of their staff as well. Well, shocking. That's the anime industry for you. And following inside of his team, you would have people like Akira Amemiya, who had done art direction and key animation and animation direction for stuff like Around the Gone, for Denocoil, Toradora with Panty and Stocky and Gardabelt, but then also to top it all off, you also had Hiroshi Kobayashi, considering that he, with his same deal, had a lot of good key animation experience, and leading into the project, he had recently come off of storyboarding on Kyoso Giga, Tiger and Bunny, and Yozakura Quartet. But probably the two biggest pieces, considering that you had another one of the Gainax veterans, Yo Yoshinari, come through since he had been doing key animation since and uh, and he'd been doing key animation since Evangelion, leading on to a lot of Imaishi's other projects like Dead Leaves, Mohoromatic. He joined Imaishi on a couple of episodes of Metabots, leading forward on a couple of the pieces of Evangelion 2.0 mechanical design for Garen Lagan, and a lot of animation direction and key animation for Penny Stocking and Garbelt, as well as being one of the concept creators for the first short film that Trigger ever made, Little Witch Academia. And basically all of these guys worked on Little Witch as well, considering that they were able to do quite a good job with it, being an original work produced for Anime Mirai 2013, and considering that they were able to basically try and have the opportunity to expand on that world and the story, two years later they were able to do another OVA called Little Witch Academia The Enchanted Parade, and they were looking for this entire project to be backed on Kickstarter, and leading towards the rest of it, they were hoping they'd be able to get their $150,000 US goal, and it was done within a week. <laughs> there were so many people that were legitimately supportive of this new studio that less than two years after it they were able to go through and double the length of their first OAV project leading into its sequel which would then translate into a full-length anime production in 2017 but that's jumping a little too far ahead considering that the last big piece of Kill the Kill's puzzle would be directed towards Masahiko Otsuka considering that he was also the co-founder along with Imaishi, along with Studio Trigger, and he had been doing multiple different pieces across that before he ended up going at Gainax. He was even the assistant director for stuff like Whisper of the Heart inside of Ghibli's catalog. He was doing assistant direction for Neon Genesis. He was doing key animation and storyboarding and episode directing for Gainax classics like his and her circumstances as well as Fooly Cooly. And the majority of these guys came through and worked what is... Not necessarily Gainax's magnum opus, but definitely the most notable, if not only second most notable, because Evangelion exists, with Garen Lagan. And all of them taking that same style and that same energy and collaborating it all together once again to essentially make another original 
balls to the wall, high octane, high energy, and completely stripped nude with all of their passions laid to bear inside of this specific show, Kill a Kill. Now, Kill a Kill did come out in the fall of 2013, and we already had a couple of these pieces un underneath Trigger's repertoire leading into that show, considering that it was like, yo, it's basically all the crews getting back together, all the major players of Gainax, you're going to be getting, like, another original Garen Lagan-esque story that's completely cranked up all the way to 11, and the majority of the trust that everybody had amongst all the people revolving around this staff Essentially, everybody was already looking forward to it before the first episode even dropped. Ren Legon was massive as one of the most influential titles of the 2000s. Trigger had already put out Little Witch Academia and proved that they still had a little bit of the gusto and the style that they had back when they were still rocking their stride at Gynax. And then they had a little bit of comedy and not necessarily sketch, but more like a really weird... 2D editing style mixed in with a lot of good cuts of animation inside of their YouTube-based anime ONA, Inferno Cop, which definitely leads into a good jumping-off point leading into the craziness that is Kill a Kill. Because back in 2013, Kill a Kill was the one that kind of jump-started in the entire meme revolving around Trigger as they were saving anime. And I still, to this day, have no fucking idea what they were talking about, considering that I don't know if it was stale. I don't know if fans were thinking that the industry was getting stale. I can't necessarily think of any, like, major anime in between, like, 2008 and 2012, or at least leading into 2013, that would have been able to take that stake, because we did have popular shows like Death Note and SAO, but there wasn't necessarily anything bombastic, nothing that could really stand the test and be considered a modern classic at the time. And to be fair, Kill a Kill wasn't that either. But the fact that it's still been able to keep this longevity and still keep this kind of scantily clad originality 10 years after its release, and the fact that it is still going strong, it is still being rewatched and remembered to this day, which to me, the point was like, okay, I understand that it's about an eight on Mal. I didn't necessarily have too high of an expectation on where essentially it's landing. But the fact that Kill a Kill is still considering Mal the 51st most popular show of all time is probably the one that surprised me the most, especially based on the content, especially based on how kind of insane this entire world became and all of the inspiration and all the things that I've learned that it decided to go through and reference and all the pieces that it's been able to go through and inspire and take from over the course of these last 10 years is definitely nothing short of something that is a phenomenal cornerstone of what anime was, especially with its rise to mainstream effectiveness inside of the 2010s. Because going into Kill a Kill and re-watching it for the first time in 10 years, not since I had watched it weekly when it was airing, It was I was definitely feeling going into it that I would either hate it more than I used to, or it would just have evolved into this pillar of the anime industry and something that every original anime should go and strive towards. And for better or worse, it didn't necessarily do that. There were things that I appreciated and understood and loved more upon this rewatch, but then there's also things that I decided to like look back on and have been fading away especially with a lot of the stuff that especially came out in the first half because everybody knows about the inherent eroticism that comes through inside of kill the kill especially the fact where it's like oh yeah you've got literally high schoolers in stripping garments 
to reach their highest potential and their highest power. It's like that now is definitely just not something that I really gel with, especially nowadays, because it's just kind of like watching 17-year-olds strip in front of you is definitely just something that is way too awkward and way too concerning and just not something that... Of course, when I was 18, that was the sickest shit of all time. But now, looking back on it, especially, it's not something that kind of <laughs> interested in rewatching the same stripping scene cut together for the third time in five episodes. It's just kind of really tough to go through it, and especially even recommend anything like this inside of Trigger's catalog, specifically for that reason. Even though, I will admit, it is totally equal opportunity. All of the stripping, all of the scantily clad women and men inside of the show ha are basically laying out everything to bear with all of their passions running wild, and that is essentially one of the major themes of the show. On top of the fact that, I mean, you've got Nudist Beach being one of the subterfuges and one of the secret organizations of the show, and it's kind of like, yes, there is a lot of stripping scenes for these girls, and then it just gets completely flipped on its head and then transitioned over to a grown man just, like, shedding his eight-pack and letting the world to see. But it's not necessarily one that you would essentially straight-faced recommend to somebody at all. Because most of the negative things that I do have to say about Kill a Kill now mostly just go through along those standard rotations where you do have a lot of the Magical Girl transformation shows that have come out over the past several decades are totally kosher and fine. And then it's Kill a Kill uses the same deal since they consistently reuse these cuts of animation more of a way to cut costs and kind of like save time and save cuts and so they don't really have to consistently go back and do the same thing. But it really doesn't get better as it goes along. In fact, it's just kind of like, okay, well, we're just going to be watching this again. Especially considering how repetitive it is inside of that first half of the show. But what it goes through and kind of soils in that aspect, a lot of the inspiration, especially with the setup of the show, who Kyoko, the main character, is based off of, the kind of historical fights and accuracies that they're able to go and blend into a modern setting leading into the middle parts of these arcs, and all of the references to either film or other animation and television and pieces that all of the staff inside of the show were inspired by, it's definitely one that is a phenomenal homage to all the passion that these creators possess. Everything related around Imaishi, and especially with what he was able to build out of this along with his team, was something that wasn't mimicked inside of anime besides them, which a lot of the time can come off as just lazy, especially when a creator decides to go back and rehash old ideas with a new twist so they can consistently go through and make the same thing over and over again without having to jump to outside the line. Imaishi and his team take that crazy energy and the core and the passion that lies inside of that creative industry around the story, and they're able to imbue it in several different worlds, especially with all the other ones that they've been able to create ever since then, where you've got tokusatsu inspirations, you've got wizarding world inspirations, you have TV drama, you've got a just really... like I really don't want to mention Darling in the Franks because that's that's just something that should be left to the test of time. This is definitely something that... Cloverworks and A1 tried to emulate where it's just if we have the team and the designs we can mimic and recreate the sexual testosterone and the energy and the passion and none of that came through at all and it's 
And seeing Darling in the Franks as that kind of a project not live up to any of the pieces and creations that Yoshinari and Imaishi were able to give them, it's just definitely something that I'm glad can be proven right, where if it's just, if the passion and the creativity is not there, then whatever ideas you are given from the people who stem those, you can't necessarily recreate it all out of nowhere. So yeah, it's definitely just been something that I'm leading into and with the films that they've been able to come out recently with especially with Promare and Gridman Universe which is weird because Gridman Universe has yet to have a release date for the West even though they've got the distribution rights down but the online leak has already been going through and people have already seen this before we've even had the opportunity to go through and get this into a theater I mean Anime Expo and the like were able to go through and debut it, but outside of that, there's just not really much else that's kind of an excuse towards that, since if you want a studio, I would say, besides MAPPA, I don't want to give MAPPA any credit, I want to give their staff all the credit in the world, but the company in of itself, I don't want to give MAPPA any sorts of deals where, like, you shouldn't go see a movie just because it's done by MAPPA. If a movie is done by Kyoto Animation, if a movie or a project is done by Studio Trigger, that is something that you can get a guaranteed audience in the West, and the fact that they still haven't been able to go through and release the Gridman Universe film universally over the course of these past couple of months is just kind of unfortunate. But getting back to the topic at hand, that same kind of energy, Trigger always going to space, always elevating the scenario, always pushing it to their limits and to their extremes, is definitely something where a lot of people would get, not necessarily bored, but worn out by that kind of passion and that kind of energy. But considering they're a good studio with a decent track record on having decent gaps between a lot of their projects, and now that Imaishi and Yoshinari definitely have teams that they're able to go through and trust with going through and producing the works that they feel like they will be able to push the envelope even further... I'm definitely glad that with these creations, they've been able to inspire a new generation of people that they've been able to bring up under their wing, especially with, I mean, Trigger does have problems as a studio, like every other studio besides Kyoto Animation, but the way that they're able to do it with original shows, with adaptations of shows, with films or television or ONA, the fact that they still have that same core unit and that still beating heart that they were able to keep alive even back in the trial years of Gainax is definitely something to be applauded, especially with what they were able to do and basically build their fan base up upon this show. I mean, Kill la Kill, even though it is a simple mystery revenge story with a whole fuck ton of action, the way that they're able to go through and still rehash some ideas that had legs, but create an entirely new world, an entirely different set of characters, all with their own initial goals and dreams and inspirations and homages, and kind of be able to harness that energy into something that now is honestly a phenomenal binge watch compared to what it was as a week-by-week. -week. Although the second half of the series was still a phenomenal week-by-week -week binge, considering that there would almost always be a cliffhanger, there would always be a new piece of information that was given, there was always a new power, a new limit, a new enhancement to be, you know, tested out and brought into the field. And kind of with, I can understand Nui a bit more, not because she's a crazy psycho bitch, but what Nui was inside of that world, especially when at the time people were like, oh, Nui, she's just 
so boring and bland and they're being really lazy with her because they're using literally After Effects to like to animate some of the things because they're literally just taking a 2D image and spinning it like a top. It's like they're so fucking boring. But in that case, she is such a chaotic fourth wall breaking monster that she can cut through panels, she can cut across time, she can cut through the opening and endings, she can essentially put herself at any point inside of the world and interact with things that shouldn't be able to be interacted with. She can interact with title cards, she can interact with the music, she can literally, probably like the most chaotic idea that I could think of is that you have two characters spread across ample distance. You get a shot reverse shot cutting the frame in half with a close-up of Nui's face and then a close-up of Satsuki's face. And then even though in reality they're hundreds of meters apart from each other, that Nui can just reach her hand across the frame and caress Satsuki's cheek like she's literally right next to her is just... That kind of chaotic energy and that kind of creativity inside of a character was something that was completely went over my head, like when I was watching it the first time. So, yes, there are a, a lot of quote unquote lazy uh, cuts in animation, but it's mostly the effect that Nui has as an antagonist inside of this show and everything that happens inside the second half, because that's probably the two major things that I can dock this is that it is too ridiculously. Uh, horny for its own good like i guess not necessarily horny because there are some dudes that are normally horny especially with looking at ryoko in the beginning of the title because she's basically just wearing a stripper outfit but as the characters themselves get more comfortable and going along it just becomes something that's an afterthought but then also with how kind of monster of the week repetitive and fight of the week that you sort of get say like a tokusatsu series the first half of the show doesn't necessarily get its wheels turning quick enough but once we finally have the opportunity to get the answers that we're looking for and then it only gets swatted away by a new set of antagonists that have always been lurking in the background the second half of kill to kill is definitely one that i always look back on on having like a phenomenal ending as well as most Trigger and Gainax works do, an elevated sense of scale and stakes and what they're able to accomplish, as well as the events that are going to potentially bring an end to the universe as we know it. But honestly, I'm glad they were able to pull it off. I'm glad that this is definitely be one of their major works that has pushed themselves to one of the higher points of the anime industry, where I can guarantee you that anything that this team puts out I will be first in line to go in and give it a try myself. Cheers, have a good one.